From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, produced in partnership with Arab Studies Institute. I am Malihera Zazan. What happened was that all visitations were canceled, so the political prisoners had no contact with the outside world. Inside prisons, they were not allowed to have newspapers anymore. The TV sets were taken out of wards. Even they could not go to the health center inside different prisons. So no one knows what is happening to the political prisoners outside. And inside prisons, there is no communication between different wards. This week, we speak with Paris-based Iranian historian Nasser Mohajer about the mass execution of thousands of political prisoners in Iran in the summer of 1988. Later in the program, award-winning Lebanese filmmaker Nadine Labaki will talk to us about her new film, Capernaum, which won the jury prize at Cannes Film Festival this year. Stay with us. In the summer of 1988, thousands of political prisoners were systematically executed in Iran, and their bodies were dumped in shallow mass graves. The killings were horrific, not only in scale, but this was done in total secrecy. And to this day, the Iranian regime has never openly acknowledged these executions. I spoke with Paris-based Iranian historian Nasser Mohajer, who has spent many years researching and documenting the horrific events of the summer of 1988, which also are the subject of his forthcoming book, Voices of Massacre. I asked Mr. Mohajer why he decided to dedicate so much of his life to research and write on this topic. One point of view is personal, meaning that uh, my generation, people of my age, have lost uh, many of their friends, many of their people that they knew they had respect for, and it's more or less like a debt to a number of people that you knew intimately and you didn't know intimately and you heard about them. Another thing is, for me as a historian, it's important to record what happens in prison because prison, in a nutshell, manifests the most important and the darkest angles of any society. And through learning prison life and prison system, one can penetrate into the structure of the existing political and social system at large. In his book, Tortured Confessions, Professor Abrahamian notes that what happened in the summer of 1988, he says this act of violence was unprecedented in Iranian history, unprecedented in form, content, and intensity. It even outdid the 1979 reign of terror. The curtain of secrecy, however, was so effective that no Western journalist heard of it and no Western academic discussed it. When did you start researching and wanting to find out exactly what happened in the summer of 1988? In July of that year, the regime suddenly, without warning, isolated the main prisons from the outside world. They laid the ground for the mass execution of political prisoners. Soon after the news was spread about the 
massacre of political prisoners. It was a shocking news to begin yeah. with. It wasn't something that we could believe. In uh, July of 1988, this is right at the end of the eight-year war between Iran and Iraq. In July of 1988, the Iranian regime suddenly announced that they will accept the UN Resolution 598 ceasefire with the Iraqi regime. Until then, the Iranian regime was insisting that, you know, we would be continuing the war until its final victory, that they wanted to invade Iraqi land as a springboard for continuing the Islamic revolution. The word that they used at the time was exportation of the Iranian revolution to the region, to the all uh, Muslim land, as they used to say. And based on this, they would say that they would never come to a compromise with the Iraqi regime. They would not accept a UN uh, intervention in the war. So this suddenly changed in uh, July of 1988, mm-hmm. and they said that they would be accepting the ceasefire. Right after this announcement that came to a surprise to both Iranian society and the opposition, Mujahideen Khalq organization, then based in Iraq, had a military excursion, two-day military excursion into the uh, western cities of Iran mm. in the region. Kurdistan region and Kermanshah. Mm. They were successful in invading two cities, but when they came to the land that is known as, they call it Mersad mm-hmm. right now, Mujahideen Khalq were cornered, were bombed, and some 2,000 of their militants were killed. And this was the beginning of a fanfare. This was the beginning of a extreme propaganda against Mujahideen Khalq. They would call them Munafirin at the time, meaning hypocrites. Mm-hmm. And in Friday prayers, in the newspapers, they started talking about revenge. And the revenge was that we should eradicate, we should eliminate Mujahideen from wherever they are. At the time, a lot of the ex-political prisoners were again summoned or rearrested, and this is what we knew, what was reflected in the newspapers, what was reflected mm-hmm. in the official proclamations of the uh, officials uh, of the regime. Do But, we know how many political prisoners we had at that time? Because it was not just <coughs> Evin prison, there were several prisons in different parts of the country. It's very difficult to come up with any concrete number. But I would say that probably around 15,000 political mm. prisoners were at the time, not only in Tehran, as you said, like, you know, there are three major prisons in Tehran, but also in prisons like in Esfahan, in Mashhad, in Rasht, all over Iran. The importance of your question, I think, goes to this point, touches this important point that the massacre that happened, you know, in the months of July, August, September, was carried out throughout detention centers in Iran. Because so everybody a, assumes it just happened in Evin. Which But is that's not, not the case. That is yeah. not the case. It happened in Gohardash, as well as Evin. It happened in Esfahan. It happened even in prisons in Kurdistan. All over we have ports now, thanks to the 
ex-political prisoners who have documented what they saw in different cities in terms of executions. But we didn't know at the time what was happening in prison. We knew about, you know, what was the fanfare that was happening inside the society, you know, for, as I said, in the proclamations and so on and so forth. But we didn't know what is happening in, inside jail. Mm-hmm. What happened was that, you know, all visitations were canceled. So the political prisoners had no contact with the outside world. Inside prisons, they were not allowed to have newspapers anymore. The TV sets were taken out of wards. Even they could not go to the health center inside different prisons, infirmaries. So no one knows what is happening to the political prisoners outside. And inside prisons, there is no communication between different wards. So this was a plan had to be put into practice, had to be effected, and it had to be effected in total secrecy. This is, as you read, the quotation from uh, Arvand Abrahamian, the historian. It was unprecedented both in form and in the total secrecy that was carried out. It seems that now we know. At the time, we didn't know. At the time, political prisoners didn't know what was going to happen. Who ordered the executions of these prisoners? Well, we now know it was Ayatollah Khomeini himself. Mm-hmm. The deadly fatwa that he issued at the time explicitly talks about executing the Mujahideen and also whoever is against the Islamic Republic of Iran. There were, in fact, two fatwas. The first fatwa explicitly talks about the muharibin and the munafiqin. And the second fatwa, and it seems that, you know, there was some confusion. They didn't know if Khomeini wanted other political prisoners to be killed or not. There is a second fatwa. The second fatwa, we do not have it, but Mm. the second fatwa is in existence. But nobody has seen it. We cannot say nobody has seen it because... From the communication and the correspondence that happened between Ayatollah Khomeini and the heir apparent, Hussein Ali Muntaziri, we know that there was a second fatwa and we know that there were others, meaning atheists, who had to be purged too. And so probably there are people inside the government, inside the regime or the inner circle of the regime who have seen this fatwa, but we do not have it in written form. So how this edict, how this order was supposed to be executed? Because there was a commission that was formed. We do not exactly know how it was formed, but mm-hmm. we know the composition of the committee. We know that there was a Hakim Shar, a religious judge, and there was a member of the Dot Setani of the prosecutor's office. We also know that there were representatives of jail, you know, who were members of this committee. It is very difficult to call this trial. It is more like what we know in uh, tribunals of the Middle Ages, of Inquisition tribunals. That would be the better term to use for this commission that was later known to the prisoners. Mm. And it's because some of the survivors, some some of the prisoners who survived, they knew who these people were and they put together the names and who was on that committee. True. Mm. So there is this commission, the 
prisoners later on when they understood what the mission of the commission was, they call it debt commission. Mm -hmm. But again, this is, is something that came through time. In the beginning, the impression was that there is an amnesty panel that has come, a commission that has come to look into the record of political prisoners' uh, behavior throughout these years, and they are going to free the prisoners. That was the first impression that the prisoners had, because after what I explained, taking the TVs out, canceling the visitations, everything, they start calling the prisoners to appear in front of this they didn't know that this is a committee of death. This, they didn't know this is a committee of death. They go there to these question and answer sessions. Uh, and the reason that I called it a inquisition tribunals is they would ask you if you're, uh, I should say this, that the trials or the inquisition started with the mujahideen. Yeah. So what they did was they took the political prisoners, they divided them up into two groups, the leftists and the mujahideen. And they had specific questions in mind. Depending on how they answered, their faith was sealed. So can you take us through that process? What happened when a leftist political prisoner or a political prisoner who belonged to Mujahideen ended up in front of this committee? It started with the Mujahideen prisoners, the supporters of the Mujahideen Khalq organization, and the question was that, do you support the organization? The Mujahideen were called by the Iranian regime munafiqin, as I said. Hypocrites, yeah. Hypocrites, as I mentioned earlier. So it was enough to say that I am a mujahid or I support the mujahideen khalq. If you would say that you're a mujahid or you're supporting the mujahideen, the name of the organization, as it was, mm -hmm. then you would immediately be condemned to death. They wouldn't tell you that you're condemned to death. They would say that, okay, when they left the room, they would be sent to some part of the prison that they had to wait. All these people who had answered that they were mujahideen or they supported the mujahideen, they were selected to be executed. They would also ask, if you say that I'm a munafiq, a hypocrite, then there would be another question. The next question would be, what do you think of Mas'ud Rajavi, the leader of the Mujahideen? Or are you ready to condemn Mas'ud Rajavi? Are you going to give an interview? For the Mujahideen, they had these kinds of questions that uh, was in connection directly to their mentioning of the name of the Mujahideen or the leadership of the Mujahideen, they would uh, decide for themselves that these people are still having sympathy to the Mujahideen. So anyone of the Mujahideen who said that I support, I still am a Mujahid, or I do not condemn you know, the leadership of the Mujahideen Khalq, was automatically condemned to death, okay? With the left prisoners, it was different. With the left prisoners, they would ask if you believe in God, if you believe in Islam, if you're ready to pray, and if you condemn your organization or not. Okay, But the main question was about believing in Islam, being ready to say your prayer, and also if you support the Islamic Republic or not. What explains this form of interrogation? Because it was very unusual 
it was not just about recantation. There was more to it. Then that I said that these interrogations reminds us of the tribunals of the Middle Ages is because of the they ask you about your convictions, your very intimate convictions, and asking about your very intimate convictions has no other meaning than inquisition. Okay, this was not done before. The Iranian Revolution, right after its victory, many political prisoners were condemned to death. And this was nothing new, the killing of political prisoners, but never in such an extent and never never with such questions asking about your belief in God or belief in Islam. This was not something that was done before. Even So what were they trying to get out of it by forcing these prisoners to answer these questions? Well, the plan was a purge, a purge of political prisoners. The plan was drawn months before this event, maybe years before this event, two years before this event. The expedition of the Mujahideen forces to the cities of Iran was just a pretext of a purge. The Iranian regime had a plan. We now know many political prisoners have been talking about, you know, the experiences that they went through a year before the purge, okay, the way that they were sorted out, the way that they were divided into different places. Even some political prisoners have attested to the fact that they were told by some of their interrogators that the purge is coming, that you would not be able to leave prisons. And this is uh, important because the Iranian regime was thinking about this alternative, that if the war with Iraq comes to an end, certain changes is inevitable. Like many of the political prisoners that you know went into these interrogations, into these questions and answer, into this inquisition tribunal, their sentences had finished. Some of them had served their sentences and they were there. They were not being released. For what reason? They did not want to release these political prisoners because they still understood them as being dangerous to their regime, that they may be out, they may be continuing the struggle, they may be reviving their own organizations, organizing people and uh, disseminating knowledge, you know, about uh, the cruelty of the regime and what have you. So for the Iranian regime, one thing from the beginning was that many of these prisoners who have served their sentences, they should not be out in the society. And for this reason, they knew that if the Iraq war comes to an end, then they could not be as rigorous as they were before the war. They had to give certain concessions to the civil society. They had to reduce the amount of repression that they were exerting on the society based on the situation of war. So the plan was they were thinking about this, that maybe at some point they may not be able to carry on the fight, to, to carry on the war to the final victory. And at that time, if they have to withdraw, they should have a plan for the political prisoners. So when they went after these prisoners, and as you said, when they decided to purge the prisons in different parts of the country from its uh, prisoner population, 
Did they select specific number of prisoners or they basically brought everyone for this interrogation and then some of them were executed and some were not, depending on how they answered these questions? All the prisoners who did not repent were retried, both in women's prisons and men's prisons, regardless of their political affiliation, belonging to religious organizations who had a different interpretation of Islam and did not believe in the reading of the Islamic uh, regime, the Islamic Republic of the Quran and Islam, and political prisoners who were not religious, who were not Muslims, uh, belong to different left organizations or would consider themselves opponents or of the Islamic Republic or would you know have considered themselves as uh, opposando of Islamic Republic. So everybody had to appear in these tribunals and for them, for this death commission, what it was important was to know that if this person is still a, a member of the opposition, if this person still insists on his political positions and considers himself someone who is against the Islamic Republic or not. They had to make sure that everyone who is in prison is either broken, accepted the rule of the Islamic Republic, and relinquished struggle against the regime. Based on that, they decided who should survive and who should be killed. Of course, one thing was important. In the beginning, the political prisoners did not know what was going on. But after, by time, some understood that there is something going on. And this is not a amnesty commission that has come. It seems that they're going to kill people. You also brought up women political prisoners. When they were interrogated, were they asked different questions than men? No, the questions were the same, but the punishment was different. They did not kill any woman political prisoner of the left. Mujahideen, many of the women who insisted on their position as a mujahid and as a supporter of the leadership were hanged. But those women of the left who did not say that I believe in Islam and I believe in Islamic government and I do my prayer, they were punished. As you know, Muslims pray five times a day. So for each portion of the prayer of the five times, they were being lashed, they were being whipped until they would succumb and say that I pray. Of course, this did not continue for long because it cannot be continued for long, you know, to be lashed every day, five times, every time, 10 or uh, 15 lashes. At one time, they had to retreat and let them live their lives in prison. But it was important for them to break the resistance of the most uh, prominent prisoners as a teaching for others. It's also important to note that the execution, because it had to be carried on in total secrecy, they did not use firing squads. They were not shot. None of the political prisoners at the time were shot, neither in Tehran nor in prisons uh, across Iran. They were all hanged. The reason that they were all hanged was that this would keep this more quiet because if you shoot political prisoners, then the sound would reveal the secrecy of what was going on. 
So this is another thing that they had to give close attention to, not to make this known to any political prisoners. Mm-hmm. It is important, again, to note that when political prisoners became aware that something is going on, that these trials is aimed at killing political prisoners, some took very dangerous risks and let others know by Morse code, let other people know that this commission is to decide about the life and death of you. Hmm. Because I read that leftist prisoners in Gohardash prison, another prison, were told that Mujahideen were being transferred elsewhere. But they suspected something was wrong and something was going on because they saw freezer vans, guards moving in and out of the amphitheater where prisoners were hanged. The Mujahideen, many of the Mujahideen were killed. Some saw through the windows and that, as you said, the containers that were carrying it. They thought in the beginning they thought it was meat being carried in and out for the prison kitchen. But later on, they realized that these are people who were hanged that, is, that are being taken to these trucks. As you said, there were several prisons spread around Iran. How many other prisoners experienced this? For example, in Mashhad or Shiraz? In or? Mashhad, in Shiraz, in Esfahan, in Kurdistan, in Rajd, in the city of Iraq. Anywhere that we had political prisoners mm-hmm. in big numbers, there were commissions who... T- retried prisoners. And people who survived those dark days, I assume they all told similar stories of what happened to them and their cellmates. I wouldn't say all. Many of the political prisoners that were released about a year or two years after the massacre kept silent. Of course, not everyone fled Iran. But amongst those, you know, who could manage to escape Iran, a good number of them have come and are in their memoirs, in testimonies in front of different commissions. They have talked about their experience. I don't think that the vast majority have done this. We still have many, many people who have not talked about Broken this. Broken their uh, silence. It was a horrible experience for many. Many still cannot mm-hmm. even talk about what they saw and what they witnessed. This took a few weeks for them to empty out the prisons. They ended up executing more than 4,000. This is according to Amnesty International. We really do not know the exact number of people who were killed. First of all, Amnesty International talks about thousands of uh, dead. They said more than 4,000, no? The, the more than 4,000 is according to the political prisoners mm. in their countings. Okay, because prisoners could come and say how many people were in, in this world and how many people are absent now. I mean, it's a simple calculation, okay? We cannot say for certain uh, the number of yeah. each ward and not every ward the number of people was, is counted, but in general, so the, it, was a rough it, it is between yeah. 4,000 and 5,000. The Mujahideen prisoners, they were carried, uh, most of them, the vast majority of them, the dead, the executed, were buried in legal cemeteries 
in Behesh Zahra, for example, or in other, you know, legal, formal cemeteries at Iran. The reason that I use this word legal cemetery, which is a, a little strange to say, the legal cemetery, is in opposition to the cemeteries that the leftists, the atheists, were. Because in 1981, when they started, this is the wave of repression mm-hmm. that reigned throughout Iran, started in the summer of 1981, when they decided to... To crush any dissent. Yeah, the final blow. Yes. Uh, the final solution yeah. uh, to crush the political organizations of opposition. At that time, they had to think about a cemetery for the atheists. And they were not going to accept to have a cemetery. Again, I use the word legal or formal. They wanted to separate them from the Muslims. The Muslims. Yeah. So there were cemeteries that they would not call cemetery. They would call the land of the damned. So this was the name that they would call it is Lanatabad. And this is why I say that we have a illegal cemetery and we have a legal cemetery. This cemetery that was decided, that was appropriated for the non-believers, is in the Khavaran, a uh, road that goes from Tehran through Saveh to Mashhad. And this, they decided to have this place for the atheists and the non-believers. So many of the left political prisoners who were executed in Tehran were buried in Khavaran, this land of the dam, many in massed unmarked graves, but then we have mass graves and then we have individual graves. And this is not just in Tehran, because I remember earlier this year, Amnesty International put out a statement saying that the Iranian government was trying to destroy some of these mass graves. Mass graves, they were not limited just to Tehran, but we mostly talk really about Tehran and Khavaran. That is true. That is true. One reason that we talk about Khavaran more than any other place is because of the movement of the mothers of Khavaran. These are the mothers and the relatives of uh, the executed political prisoners in Tehran who soon after understanding what has happened started a movement, a very courageous movement, you know, in under total repression, uh, going to uh, Ministry of Justice going to the uh, Majlis, the Iranian parliament, uh, so to speak, and demanding what has happened to our loved ones, why they were retried, why they were killed. Who found these mass graves? Well, it was probably by accident. The first mass grave was that we know of. And in this book that I'm putting out, we have this mother who talks about going to Khavaran and all of a sudden looking that the earth is, you know, kind of fresh, and then seeing a hand coming out of the earth, and then pushing the earth and finding out that there is a person is buried there. And then what happened after they found out that some of their loved ones were buried in those mass graves? After that, the cemetery of Khavaran became more or less like a place for people assumed that, you know, without knowing their loved ones is buried where in this piece of land, they decided to pick up a place and 
assume that their loved one is buried there. They would put a stone, they would put something there. But from the moment that Khawaran was discovered by the family of the bereaved, there was a struggle between the families and the pastor on the military forces of the regime who would not permit the mothers, the families to be there. So there is a struggle all the time. There has been a struggle all the time. This became a symbol for the families of political prisoners and for the opposition in large that this is the most important evidence that we have of this crime against humanity because of the very fact that this is the only evidence that we now have. They tried to keep this place and they tried to to give protection to this place. And for the same, for the very same reason, the Iranian regime and all the governments since that execution have tried to destroy and get rid of this evidence that nothing stays there from this crime that happened in 1988. You know, Iranian government has never been shy about executing political prisoners. Why do they deny the existence of this dark episode? Why? I would say it questions their own legitimacy, even for their own forces. You have imprisoned people. You have tortured people. You have taken confession from people. You have condemned people. You have given them sentences. Five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. In the 1981, 1982, 1983, thousands of political prisoners from different beliefs, with different beliefs and convictions, were tried, condemned to execution. Many were killed under torture. Besides them, some people tolerated the tortures. Some people went through, you know, classes, ideological indoctrination, but did not repent. And also public recantations. Public recantations. And they had their sentences. They had their sentences. They were serving their sentences. Three years, five years, 10 years, life. Now, these very people were retried again based on no fact that the only pretext that they could find was that the Mujahideen, they have come uh, to some uh, Western cities and they started a military expedition. For that, all political prisoners had to pay. They could not even justify this. And we should not forget that the heir apparent of Ayatollah Khomeini, his successor, question this, that what is going on? On what basis are we trying people who are serving their sentences? It is nothing that, you know, can be justified for no one, let alone the international community. It makes a mockery of law and their justice. For more than two decades, there was absolute silence about the 1988 mass execution of Iranian political prisoners. But little by little, we started hearing from former political prisoners, um, seeing them telling their stories. There were a couple of tribunals in Europe, if I'm not mistaken. What has changed in our understanding of what happened? One year after the execution, the family of political prisoners they gathered some 1,000 names 
and they were putting out a uh, underground newspaper called Bangarahai, Echo of Liberation. They put out some issues of that underground newspaper, which was very important in bringing consciousness to the opposition outside, exile opposition of the Iranian regime. The fact that this happened could not be easily accepted, that such a crime has happened in uh, such a scope. So little by little, we started to learn more. As you said, little by little, you know, in the, in the early 90s, we had political prisoners who came out. The first memoirs came out. And as one can expect, you know, these memoirs are memoirs that are being distributed mainly in Europe and North America mm-hmm. in a uh, very limited circles, limited, yeah. uh, circles and limited circulation. Yeah. So little by little, you know, we had more memoirs. Little by little, we had more people coming out talking about this. So our understanding of this crime went through a process of evolution. And with this evolution, we could talk about it in more concrete ways. So after 10 years, we had a literature and we had much more information about this crime, this very dark episode. Even it is called the nowadays, easily it is called a uh, national tragedy, mm-hmm. a national catastrophe for the Iranian people. So, you know, after 10 years, it was just a small group of people. This small group of people tried to diffuse and tried to to give information to international media, international press. And little by little, it took art forms, music, songs, theater. And little by little, you know, more people became aware of something that was limited to the family of political prisoners who had no voice inside Iran. Their voice could not be reflected anywhere, in no newspaper, in no mass media, other than what is going on, what we have in exile. So I think that we can, as you said, we can say that a good number of people in exile, and because of that, because of the intimate relationship, organic relationship that exists between the exile immigrant community that is numbered million with the Iranian people inside, that even the people inside know much more about it right now. The writings, memoirs of Ayatollah Muntaziri was another important uh, episode in this. Its details were leaked. Exactly. Mm. And, uh, well, the memoirs is there. A lot of people have read it. I mean, people who want to follow such a news, they could read the memoirs and part of the memoirs deals exactly with this Mm -hmm. episode and deals with, you know, what went on between Muntaziri and Ayatollah Khomeini. Even last year, for the 29th anniversary of that, the audio files of what happened between Muntaziri and some representatives of Ayatollah Khomeini who came to visit him in the city of Qom was revealed by his son by the bait of Ayatollah Muntaziri, the house of yeah. Ayatollah Muntaziri. And this affected many people, you know, who did not know about this. So little by little, consciousness, awareness about this crime has uh, spread. So in the past, 
two decades or so. The stories have been documented. I know you have interviewed many of these former political prisoners, their survivors, some of the parents. Iranian regime to this day continues to deny the 1988 elimination of political prisoners. And none of the perpetuators have yet been brought to justice. And none of the regime's senior officials, including Khamenei, have been held accountable. Since, as I said, you have talked to many of these uh, survivors and the children of those who were executed in 1988, what do they want? They have never uttered the word revenge. So, but what is it that they want? And why is it important for us to have this discussion? about well, something that happened 30 years ago? It's a struggle between oblivion and memory, between forgetfulness and memory. What we can do in order to prevent history to be repeated, this is the most important aspect of this struggle. After the Second World War, after the experience of fascism, the same thing was happening in oral history. The same thing was happening. What happened in Auschwitz, in the camps, concentration camps, in the death chambers. And what we are experiencing now is the same in terms of documenting what happened and making it something that the next generations would understand what happened to us, what happened to this country. As you said, it's a dark, a very dark moment, maybe the darkest moment of the recent history of Iran. What the families of political prisoners want, it's a long struggle. It is a struggle that would survive the families. It is not going to be stopped. Seeking justice, meaning that the families, the sons and daughters, again, some of them have talked in the voices of massacre, talked about their own experiences, knowing that very basic demands, why they were killed, how they were killed, where they're buried, who were the responsibles of this crime. Having a public hearing about what happened would be the most basic thing that can be done if we do not want revenge, but we want justice to happen through such very basic demands. Nasser Mohajer is a Paris-based Iranian historian and the author of Voices of Massacre. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.
Lebanese director Nadine Labaki received the jury prize at the Cannes Film Festival for her moving film Capernaum, which has also been selected as Lebanon's submission for Best Foreign Language Film at next year's Academy Awards in Hollywood. Capernaum, which in Greek means disorderly collection of objects or giant mess, tells the story of 12-year-old Zayn, a boy growing up in the slums of Beirut. The film is actually about a boy who's 12 years old who sues his parents for giving him life. And in the film, you start understanding what made him get there, what made him take that stand and stand in front of the judge and say the things he had to say. How did you go about finding the actors and actresses? Because majority of the actors, performers in this film are non-professional actors, especially the kids. And Zayn, in real life, he's a Syrian refugee who ended up in Beirut with his parents and his life parallels the character that he plays in the film. It was very important that I work with people who are in similar circumstances in their real lives because it, for me, I think cinema can have a completely different mission when you're watching the struggle of real people. There's no make-believe there. When you're actually witnessing somebody else's problems and it's, it sort of humanizes the problem instead of hearing about it in the news and figures and numbers and you actually put a face to that problem and you start seeing it really. And I wanted to do that. I wanted to work with people who bring their own struggle to the film. There's no make-believe in the film. There's no acting. There's no actors. There are people who are here. I did never ask them to act. I just asked them to be, to be who they are in a certain situation, of course, that we have created and that we had written, but also based on a lot of reality and a lot of research and a lot of things we had seen. But I think that cinema can have a much bigger impact when it's dealing with real people and what it's showing you a real struggle. And I think you come out of the movie theater changed in a way when you know that this struggle is actually happening in real life. This is not just another film with another actor that's going to be acting in a different film with a different role and a different character. It's a completely different approach. And this is what I wanted to do here. Just bring those people with each one his own and her own experience in life and struggle in life and just put it out there on the screen and just let them express it, let them express their struggle, let them express this. I didn't want to also feel like I was in a way manipulating the truth or maybe imposing it on people who have never lived it. I just wanted to collaborate with people who have actually lived it because I felt, I felt I was not, I'm not entitled to talk in their names where I haven't been in their shoes. I want to tell their story, yes, but I cannot impose my own imagination of that story on them. Who am I to try to at least dare to be in their shoes? So that's how it happened. That's, that's why I'm working with people who have the same struggle in their life. Is it true that some of the dialogue in the film was not scripted? 
There was a lot of improvisation. Of course, the script was very solid. I mean, it took like three years of writing the script and it was in parallel with the research. We would research and then come back and debate and put those scenes in the film. What we had witnessed would somehow find itself again in the script that we had written. And it was a very solid script, but we were also open to just letting it, you know, you have to adapt to the actors and not the other way around. Usually when you're working with professional actors, the actor is adapting to your script. He's adapting to your dialogues, adapting to a certain mise-en-scene or even camera movement or even uh, lighting. Here we had to do the complete opposite, which is us adapting to them, adapting to their personalities, to their way of talking, to their body language, to their to everything about them. So it was impossible that they just memorize things that I had written. It felt fake. So we had to, in a way, adapt what was written to their personality. So it was a very thin line between truth and fiction all the time. It was this negotiation between truth and fiction the whole time and working with their truth and navigating it towards the fiction that was already written, towards the dialogues that were written. It's just being open, just being free. It's much simpler than we think. It's just being open to who they are and not really box them or try to mold them in a way that they become who you want them to be. It's the other way. Zayn is a Syrian refugee living in Beirut. Can you talk a little bit about how you found him what were you looking for besides he resembled or paralleled the character that you had written in your script? Introduce us to Zane, both as a character in the film, as the main protagonist, also as a Syrian refugee. When I was watching the film, I realized they come from different places, but they share same the same fate. And they're both on the margins of the society, and they're both invisible at the end of the day, regardless of the geography that they occupied before ending up in that space in Beirut. Yes, so Zayn is um, a Syrian refugee. He was living in Lebanon for the past eight years. He flew the war from Syria, so he ended up in Lebanon. And you know, being in Lebanon, as a Syrian refugee is not an easy thing when Lebanon has hosted 1.5 million refugees. And this is only the official number. I mean, the official number, maybe unofficially, there are much more. So, so Lebanon is already facing a big economical problem. So with the Syrian refugees, it's not easy. So Zayn has been living in very difficult circumstances. He was living in a very, very poor neighborhood in Lebanon, um, a very poor house, very poor, never went to school because of his financial situation. Uh, at the time we were shooting the film, he was 12 years old. He didn't even know how to read, uh, how to write his own name. So Zayn grew up on the streets because he didn't go to school. And, and he knows what the streets mean. He knows the violence of the streets. He, know the, he knows the, the hardship, the suffering, the uh, disrespect. He, know the he knows the mistreatment, the abuse. He knows what it feels to have to struggle, to exist, uh, to have to face racism, to have to face xenophobia, to have to face. Um, 
And the violence of when you see those kids fighting, you think, what? They're not kids anymore. You see them fighting with knives, with sharp objects. You see the way they talk to each other. You see the swearing and, and you think, what is this? These, they are not kids anymore. So, so Zane has the wisdom and the strength of a child who grew up on the streets facing all of these things and having to prove every day, to struggle every day, to even exist. So he has this wisdom, he has this strength, he has this foul language, he has the, 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 those sad eyes that witnessed so much. You know it, you know Zane has seen, Zane has seen a lot. I know it without even him telling it to me because he doesn't like to talk Zane. He's a very, you know, he doesn't like to, to share his whatever he's been through, but I can feel it. I can, you know, put the puzzle, the pieces of the puzzle together from things that he would say or reactions that he would do. Or, and I know he's been through a lot. So I was looking for that when I was, you know, um, describing Zane to the casting department. I was looking for that, you know, I was telling them I need a boy who's a bit smaller than his age because of malnutrition, who has this tough personality and all, all those descriptions that, uh, that I just told you about. And I was thinking to myself, I'm never going to find this kid. What am I asking them to do? It's, it's a, it's a, what am I asking life to give me? It's going to be impossible to find Zane. But we found him, and, 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 and the casting director found him on the streets. He was playing with his, uh, with his friends. He was actually feeding a chicken. <laughs> and he saw him and interviewed him. And as soon as I saw him, it was very clear to me that, you know, he stood out, that it was going to be him. So in the film, he's supposed to be stateless, without papers, which means symbolically it's a kid that we don't know what his, his real identity with, just to tackle this symbolism of, of, this, of this situation, of the situation of being non-existent, of being non-existent to the world, not having any paper to even prove who you are. So it was in a way symbolic. He, he shouldn't be, he, he shouldn't be Lebanese or Syrian or whatever. He's just a child that is deprived from his most basic rights, which is uh, the most basic one is just having an identity. And then it starts from there. So having, not having an identity means not going to school, means not even being you know, hospitalized if something happens to you, means not being able to live or work or travel, not being, not being able to live. And there is a scene in the film where Zane is looking for his papers um, because he's hoping to get out. Even as a kid, he thinks he can do that. And when he asks his father, where are my papers? And his father says, you want the hospital bill? You want the rent that's overdue, hasn't been paid? So these are the, sort of the kinds of papers that he has to deal with every day. And this is what he cares about as opposed to a passport or an ID card. Exactly. It was a way of of yes talking about that problem too i mean for him i love this scene i'm happy that you're bringing it up because it's the first time that somebody speaks to me about this scene and i and i found this scene i like this scene because i think it's very symbolic of the situation exactly 
And when he, when his father tells him, we are nothing, we are insects, we are parasites. I think it's something that I also heard a lot from children in this situation. Children that I met throughout this whole four years of research, children who have been really in, in very extreme situations uh, of neglect and abuse and all that. And they tell you, I, I used to ask them, you know, are you happy to be alive? And most of them would tell me, no, I'm not happy to be alive. I wish I was dead. And they would say, I am nothing. I am a parasite. I'm an insect. They would use those words. And most of them don't even know when they are born, exactly like Zane. You would ask him, how old are you? He would say, approximately 12, 13 years old. So you've, you don't know your exact date of birth. No, my mother told me I was born uh, on a rainy day or it was snowing or whatever. So you've never actually celebrated your birthday. Nobody's ever told you happy birthday or you are important to me. I'm celebrating their birthday. So do these children don't have any sense of their value in life. Lebanese director Nadine Labaki received the jury prize at the Canfield Festival for her moving film Capernaum, which also has been selected as Lebanon's submission for Best Foreign Language Film at next year's Academy Awards in Hollywood. Capernaum opens in the Bay Area on December 21st at Landmark Clay in San Francisco and on December 28th at Landmark Shadak in Berkeley. And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 632, email vomekpfa at yahoo.com, connect with us on our Facebook at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, or follow us on Vomina Radio. Please join us next time for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. Thank you.